Good morning. Good morning. And it is a good morning. We're here another day. We have another opportunity to get it better, get it right, to do it well. And I want to make sure that you understand that WBAI is on your side. This is Law of the Land with Gloria J. Brown Marshall. And I had to say all of that first because sometimes we need a little uplift. And I know I do. And a funny thing happened to me that was not so funny. I had a friend say to me, well, you'll be all right, Gloria. And I said, what makes you believe this? With everything going on politically, socially, pandemically, educationally, financially, why do you think everyone's all right? So I want you to check on those people you think are doing all right. Give them a telephone call. Find out how they are actually doing and spend some time on the call, not just I'm checking on you, glad to hear your voice and I'm gone. I need you to actually know that during the holidays, especially for people like myself and others who have had losses before this pandemic, people are having losses for other things, cancer, car accidents, bike accidents, you know, natural, so-called natural causes. All of this is going on during the pandemic. People are going under a lot of stress. You have parents who are dealing with children and we want to make sure that we can check on each other for nothing else we have the time make sure you reach out phone call find out how others are doing and taking that into account how is the rest of the world doing we spend so much time as americans are want to do being so insular that we need to look at what's going on in the rest of the world so on this day in which in the united states we have nearly 15 million COVID cases and over 283,000 deaths due to COVID. Now that COVID-19 has become the first cause of death for most Americans, we need to actually say, yes, we're going through it. In other countries, China, where this is initiated, is having handful, a handful and they have the largest population with a handful of COVID deaths, as we know it. And this is what we're dealing with, with a White House of, I, I just have to say again, someone who is delusional, who is president of the United States at this moment, delusional in many ways. And let's start with his delusion regarding the election. And we are looking at the New York Times and see, and if we have a chance, you know, this paper or any other, that there's been a recertification of the of the voting counts in Georgia after three counts, Georgia recertifies Biden's win. That is in today's paper with Richard Fawcett and Georgia, as I quote, Georgia election officials on Monday recertify the results of the state's presidential race after another recount reaffirmed Joseph R. Biden Jr.'s victory over President Trump. The third time that results show that Mr. Trump had lost the state. And yet there are over 40 Eight cases, 48 and counting, filed in this fraudulent, so-called fraudulent election scheme that is a delusion. This man has been delusional for decades. And, you know, for those of us in New York, many of us knew he was delusional back then when he used to call the media and pretend that he was um, a reporter asking about himself when he was delusional in, in the amount of money he claimed to make. He's been delusional and mentally ill for some time. His mental illness has taken on such high stakes 
in this situation. And as I've asked um, some of my friends who voted for him, why did you vote for him? Not one person could ever tell me why they voted for him. It was just a feeling. And that might be all you need. Maybe all you need is a feeling. Nobody says that you have to have you know, concrete reasons to vote for someone. It doesn't have to be policy or politics, whatever it may be. But when you're voting for someone and you continue to support someone as delusional as this, where members of his own party, uh, judges that he actually um, supported who are ruling against him. And this has just become a, a really... Uh, horrible situation. We've said this time and time again, but it also feels so much like a cult and the people who are following him are in some cult-like trance. And it's, it's really um, despicable to have someone who's delusionally being um, uh, fed lies by people around him, telling lies about this election, undermining the democratic principles. And since this is law of the land and my focus is the Constitution, to have the Constitution subverted in this way is, is appalling. And But once again, that's Americans looking at America. Let's look outside of America. Let's look at, for example, the killing of an autistic man exposes a police brutality problem in Israel. And this is also in the New York Times International section. And they are looking at the death of Iyad al-Haq as a George Floyd for a Palestinian man who had autism in this particular case. So now they have ignited Palestinian Lives Matter movement around the death of this man with autism who was killed by um, Israeli police there. Take a look at that article. And also in Poland, there are a number of things going with the Me Too movement and see how we have the American movements that have spread to the rest of the world. But also know the Me Too movement was started by a black woman. And so we have not just the George Floyd movement started by black people in Minnesota, but we have the Me Too movement that has spread to Poland. And this um, article, once again, in the international section of the New York Times, quote, I think, I feel, I decide, rejecting politics of the Polish church. In this particular instance, and I quote, women's demands for reproductive freedom and their calls for greater equality threaten to upend a power structure that has held since the fall of communism. In this particular instance, the issue began over abortion rights and continues to go forward based on the fact that women play such a small role in the um, social and political fabric of, the, of Poland. And I've actually traveled to Poland in my time. And so um, this goes on to say, and this is Amanda Taub, and states that, quote, women have been at the heart of a protest movement that has grown and battled on Poland's streets since October, spurred by a court decision to ban most abortions. But this has never just been a one-issue protest. Something deeper is going on, and it has been building for years. Now, in this particular article, we read that hundreds of thousands of women, teenagers, and their male allies have been turning out every few days in the streets and cities in these protests that began, as stated earlier, around women's rights and the women's, a woman's right to choose and has now expanded to this, this issue of what is the role of women in the life, in the life of Poland, the political life, the social life, what is the power of the woman in Poland? And 
as I said, we needed to look beyond what's going on in America. It touches on it, but we have to look beyond it and stop being so insular. And so I wanted to focus this particular show on the Universal Declaration of Human Rights as we um, go into UN Day. And my guest is going to be someone who I've known for many years, who has been working around the issue of the UN Declaration of Human Rights and what does a human right mean? The, the difference between human rights and, and civil rights, for example, we're going to be discussing that. We're going to be looking at a number of these issues. I also want to touch on something that's going to be highly important coming up, and that is the December 14th case. We're going to get to the UN, but I want to finish one last issue dealing with this election because the Electoral College is a part of our political scheme, part of our U.S. Constitution, but also part of our controversy and confusion when it comes to the election. And the U U Electoral College played an unusual role, we'll say, in 2016 in that Donald Trump lost the popular vote by over three million votes to Hillary Clinton. But he was anointed president, selected by the Electoral College, or I will say he had more electoral votes at the time, and therefore he became president of the United States. And the question of banning the Electoral College, what is the Electoral College, I want us to have an ongoing conversation about that. And so I want to begin that conversation today by looking at what is the Electoral College vote and understanding that the necessary amount of votes, the 538 that are, are needed, um, are part of the Electoral College, and 270 then become the electoral votes needed to become um, the President of the United States. And after 48 baseless lawsuits, um, there have been many people who have been pushing back against the attorneys themselves who are bringing the lawsuits because Joe Biden has over the 270 mark of what's necessary to be president of the United States. And yet we keep having these fraudulent lawsuits and the lawsuits themselves are frivolous, but attorneys cannot continue to bring lawsuits in the face of concrete evidence that there is no real case. So therefore, we have three major issues going on. We have an electoral college. We have the recertification of votes indicating that the electoral vote of having over 270 votes necessary to be president is firm. Then why continue to bring these lawsuits? Is it possible in the United States one can sue on about anything? However, a lawyer cannot continue to sue when they know that their cases are baseless. This is an ethical violation. And so each year, lawyers must sign a form that says that they are going to follow the rules of the state in which they are barred. And then we become a part of the bar. That means that you have to follow the ethical dictates. And in state court or federal court, one can be sanctioned by that state or by the, the federal government if you're in a federal suit, but if you're in a state suit, one can be sanctioned by their state, either the state in which they have their um, license or bar, or a state in which they have filed a frivolous lawsuit. So we're going to see whether or not there will be um, lawsuits brought, um, or at least uh, not lawsuits themselves, but um, challenges made and charges brought against attorneys who continue to bring these cases on behalf of, of Donald Trump and whether or not there'll be um, ethics complaints filed against them for frivolous lawsuits. But let's go to 
um, one particular case, and that is um, Representative Bill Pascrell, a New Jersey Democrat, has filed bar complaints in five states against uh, nearly two dozen lawyers that have been working on President Trump's legal effort to challenge the election. In his complaint letter, he alleged the attorneys engaged in conduct involving dishonesty, fraud, deceit, or misrepresentation. And that was filed on November 20th. It's going to be very interesting to find out if these judges who don't want to be a part of a political fray but have turned away these um, frivolous lawsuits by Donald Trump's attorneys. And you know, Giuliani is, is an attorney who has his license in New York State. He can have a complaint against him, and there have been those who have filed ethical complaints against him alleging that he is filing frivolous lawsuits and therefore could come under an ethical violation in the state of New York. All of this is going on as we speak. But as I said, let's turn to the rest of the world. Let's look at... Um, this issue of human rights and think about the United Nations Day in which we have a designated day to focus on human rights, where human rights should be every day. We'll be right back with attorney Michael Cooper to talk about United Nations and talk about the International Human Rights Day that's coming up this week. We'll be right back. When the night has come And the land is dark And the moon is the only light we'll see No, I won't be afraid Oh, I won't be afraid Just as long as you stand Stand by
Yes, Benny King, Stand By Me. And that's what we need to do, stand by our international allies, stand by those who are struggling around the world, look outside of ourselves for a change, even though we're going through it. But we can be strengthened by thinking of others because whatever we have can be seen as a blessing compared to what other people are going through around the world. So I have with me Michael Cooper, I have to say, is not just an internationally known expert on human rights, but also a friend. Good morning, Michael. Good morning, Gloria. How are you this morning? I'm doing very well. Thank you for joining me with all the things that you do to take time out to be on my program today is a quite an honor. And uh, Michael and I met, um, I guess, uh, so many years ago, we're not going to say because I lie about my age. But um, <laughs> but I want to, to speak on the fact that we're coming up on December 10th, um, International Human Rights Day, and I want you to tell the world many of the things that um, we should be thinking about in addition to our own personal problems. We know that you studied in Norway at the Peace Research Institute of Oslo, that you have a master's in global policy and conflict resolution from NYU, and that you've been in New York for quite some time and this being a lawyer and not just a, a lawyer but an international human rights attorney who's worked in so many of these issues and now you're at um, Oxford tell me about that oh my gosh well first of all I just want to say how delighted I am to, to speak with you at this time of year you know just on the eve of Human Rights Day um, I was thinking back about the very first time that I read the Universal Declaration of Human Rights I was uh, doing my master's degree at NYU, and the document was assigned one evening. I must have been in my mid-20s, I suppose. And I remember that my first reaction when I read it was, quite frankly, anger, because I thought, how can I have lived you know, almost a quarter of a century and not have known anything about this document? No one had told me about it. Um, and I guess I, I knew you know, instinctively, I think we all know that we have some basic human rights, but... Um, I was kind of surprised at some of the rights that I found in the document, you know, um, uh, the right to health care and other sort of social and economic rights really struck me. I grew up in, in the Midwest and in, in Ohio and, you know, very working class family. Uh, I won't say we were the poorest of the poor, but we were not well off. And so this idea that um, there were rights out there that I had, that I had, I had no uh, conscious knowledge of was really kind of stunning to me. And I, I was, um, again, I was sort of angry that no one had told me about this. So I remember that evening when I read it, I thought to myself, you know, part of my life's mission has to be to let more people know about this document. And um, so at any rate, that's why I'm just really thrilled to be here talking with you this morning. And hopefully there are people out there listening who've maybe never heard of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and will be curious about it and, uh, you know, Google it and maybe give it a quick read. It's a very straightforward, simple document um, that's meant for, for everyone to read and absorb. And um, I hope that that's one of the things we'll achieve today is letting a few more people know about the Universal Declaration. 
Well, that is part of our our show today, but we can start there. I wanted to go there um, a little later, but we can start there now. And the UN Declaration. Now, if you think about the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and those of you who are online right now can go to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And we can also just, if you want to, um, look at a, a few of those rights that, that Michael raised and um, freedom from torture and degrading treatment. We would assume that that would be a human right, um, right to equality before the law. However, there's also a right to leisure and a right to own property. And I think that's what's uh, when we when when Michael Cooper is talking about some of these rights, for example, the right to education. There is no right to education in our U.S. Constitution. And there's a right to education in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. So it is a, a, a fascinating document to read. So even in a, as, as was pointed out to even know exists. Because so many people do not know that these, this document exists. And we in New York have the United Nations um, New York offices building here. We know that the headquarters is in Geneva, Switzerland. And in this instance, we still know very little about the outside world. The United States is so insular. And so as you started to say, you began to, to see this um, Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Is, is that what started you on your path to work in the area of human rights? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, it's funny. I mean, <laughs> in fourth grade, a magician came to my school, and I thought, oh, my God, that's the highest calling in life to be a magician. I really wanted to be a magician when I was young. And I, I remember reading this book about if you want to be a good magician, you should learn about the theater. So I got involved in the theater, and I ended up, coming to New York and, um, and getting a degree in theater when I was very young at NYU. And I was out on the road um, performing with the National Shakespeare Company, a bus and truck tour across the country. And late one evening, one of my fellow actors came up to me and said, Michael, you know, everybody else on this bus is reading a biography of a famous actor or a play, and you're reading a book called The Constitution and What It Means Today. I think you're on the wrong bus. <laughs> and it turned out that he was right. I was on the wrong bus. And so while I was on that tour, I started applying to programs and ended up at NYU in this kind of global policy and conflict resolution um, area where I discovered the Universal Declaration. And it, it really moved me um, to dedicate, you know, most of my life has been spent on doing um, work in and around uh, human rights. And no matter what I'm doing from, from one year to the next, whenever I fill out my tax return, I always write human rights advocate because ultimately that's what I consider myself to be as a human rights advocate. And it's all because of reading this document so many years ago. And in human rights, there's so much going on around the world. How do you decide mm -hmm. where to dive in? Oh, my gosh. That's a, that's a very difficult question. I mean, I think, you know, awareness is is, is is key to everything because if people aren't aware of the fact that they have these rights and that the rights can be vindicated, more importantly, then you can't make any progress. Um, so you have to start in a place where people are knowledgeable about what their rights are. And, you know, one of the principles we have in law is that there's, there's no right where, there's, where there isn't a remedy. So if you don't have a remedy, it's difficult to, to vindicate those rights. So I think you know, part of the human rights framework has to be a respect for the rule of law. Um, you can have the rule of law without human rights, 
uh, you can have a rule of law that, that is sort of valueless, just a set of rules that people have to follow. The Nazis were very good at following their own rules, but they weren't informed by human rights. So you can have rule of law without human rights, but you can't have human rights without the rule of law. And so, you know, I think that's one of the fundamental things that we need to look at uh, right now in our own society and around the world is, are we really protecting the rule of law to the extent that we need to? Because if we lose that and we lose uh, sort of democratic um, you know, underpinnings of the rule of law, then then we're all in trouble. There's no way really to, to vindicate our rights. So, so I guess that's where I would start is with just a basic awareness of what the rights are and understanding that in order to vindicate those rights, you need some kind of a remedy. And in order to have remedies, you have to have rule of law. Well, um, I am a believer that this country needs a Truth and Reconciliation Commission around the issue of race. And mm. they, can, they can look to South Africa or not. They can have a quasi-Truth and Reconciliation Commission. But until that happens, until there are people who are actually able to voice the pain and anguish of what has happened in their um, family line or what is happening to them at the moment and the fears that they have for their children going forward, that we're not truly going to have human rights in this country. And many of the treaties, for example, the covenant on the um, elimination of all forms of, of race discrimination, yes, the United States signed a treaty, the covenant on the elimination of all forms of racial discrimination. And as Michael Cooper has pointed out, um, we don't know about these treaties, but this treaty exists. But what the United States does with so many of these treaties that could be um, so changed, so you know, country changing, society changing, the United States, is to have these mm -hmm. caveats that say, but it has to be connected to what the law is in the United States and what the constitutional law is. And so each time there's this uh, ability to expand beyond what we have, it's undercut by these strings attached that say, oh, we're not going to do that or because um, if, if it's connected to our um, uh, decisions within our Supreme Court, then yes, we are a part of that treaty, but if not, then we're not a part of the treaty or decide like the International Criminal Court that we're not going to be a part of it at all. So, mm. uh, yes, I want to go, but, but your experiences have been so broad. Um, just looking at, for example, your, your work during NATO's Kosovo intervention, and you served with the UN High Commissioner for Refugees as a protection officer, um, working with the troops and international agencies to provide legal and physical protection for refugees and returnees and displaced persons. Um, those, those issues around being displaced, we have so many, right now, millions of people displaced before the pandemic took place. What are you seeing now in your, in just your view of the world when it comes to the way the pandemic has exposed the fissures of the most vulnerable around the world? Mm, that's a really good question. You know, um, I do a bit of work also in what we call, it's a sort of an emerging legal field called disaster law. And I think one of the tensions in the rhetoric around disaster law has to do with discrimination. So on one hand, we often will say to people, you know, natural, so-called natural disasters. I don't believe there's such a thing as a natural disaster. They're all man-made disasters at the end of the day. But, you know, we say, well, natural disasters don't discriminate, right? They affect everybody equally. That's one message. 
on the other hand, will often say, no, 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 disasters do discriminate. So we see that with, the, with respect to the pandemic, for, for example. It's affecting uh, communities of color more, more um, strongly than it is other communities, for example. Um, poor communities more strongly than wealthy communities. That's sort of always the way. Um, so I, I think that issue, that tension over, you know, what's the more powerful message to say to everyone, hey, look, this pandemic affects all of us, therefore we all need to come together and fight it. Is that a more effective message in terms of creating a public health response? Or is the more effective message to say, wait a minute, this, this pandemic is really discriminating against certain people. Certain populations are much more heavily affected, and therefore we need to target our interventions in a way that protects those particular populations. It's difficult to know, to be honest. It doesn't even matter which one of those statements is most true. I think what really matters is which one is most effective for us in, in stemming the pandemic. So it's incredible to watch. Um, I mean, because I've done a lot of research in the disaster area, you know, you see it time after time, um, the way that disasters can discriminate, whether it's, whether it's Katrina or the pandemic or, you know, overseas disasters. Uh, I remember that during the big uh, Southeast Asian tsunami, for example, um, there were more women that drowned during that tsunami than men. And one of the reasons was that women were never taught to swim because it wasn't thought um, appropriate uh, for women to learn how to swim. So they, they had trouble swimming or climbing trees or doing things like this. And as a result, you know, many more were lost than, than were men. So, um, you know, I think it's true that disasters do discriminate. And I think it's true that disasters don't discriminate. But again, you know, the, the real question is, which is the more powerful message that helps us to mitigate the effects of disaster? I don't know if that goes to your question, but um, and I have to say, just as a sidebar, I completely agree with you about this idea of truth and reconciliation. I don't know if it's a commission or what it is, but we need to reconcile ourselves with our past here in this country. And it's difficult to do that without us understanding the, the brutality and violence that was um, you know, innate to that past. And we're talking with Michael D. Cooper, Esquire, who is an expert in human rights as we come up on December 10th, which is International Human Rights Day. We're discussing the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And this is a document, a treaty of sorts, but it wasn't a treaty uh, to which countries would commit. So it is an, uh, a, a booklet of ideals. Is that more of what we should call it, Michael? How do you look at the Universal Declaration of Human Rights? Well, I think you're, you're right. It, the, the Declaration, when it was adopted, it was just that. It was a declaration of the fundamental principles of individual rights. And it's the first time that the world had ever come together to make such a declaration. But even those who were adopting it in the moment, like Eleanor Roosevelt, who, who led the negotiations around the Universal Declaration, didn't hold that the Declaration itself would be legally binding. It was adopted without dissent by the General Assembly. In the beginning, um, the group that had come together to, to forge this in the member states had felt that what they really needed was an international bill of rights, and they wanted to go straight to that, straight to that legally binding document. But they found it quite difficult because the starting place was, was rather uncomfortable. I mean, if you think back about you know, uh, April 1946, when everybody sat down to start negotiating this document, at that point in time, there was no agreement on some pretty fundamental things, like people couldn't agree whether men and women had equal rights. People couldn't agree whether or not individuals could own property. 
And this um, is 1948. Uh, uh, well, yeah, well, even, yeah, exactly. I mean, the, the negotiation started in, the, in, 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 um, in 1946, actually at Hunter College on April 29th, I think it was 1946, the, the kind of nuclear commission that was charged with drafting this thing sat, sat down to talk about it. So they couldn't, you know, not only could they not agree on some of the basic uh, foundational um, elements of what constituted rights, they also couldn't agree from where those rights came. Did they did they come from God? Did they come from the state? Did they come from nature because humans had a sort of a higher intelligence? We were sentient beings. So they couldn't even agree on what the source of those rights were. Um, so it was a really difficult negotiation. And um, now I've forgotten who, whose quote this is, but the, a famous quote I remember is that uh, somebody said after the declaration was adopted, look, we all now agree on what the rights are. Just don't ask us why why we agree because we agree for different reasons <laughs> um, but I think you know the, the drafters of the declaration were able to uh, uh, overcome some of those differences so if you think for example about the um, uh, you know article one of the declaration uh, all uh, human beings are all, born all free and equal mm -hmm. free and equal in dignity and rights right and that they are they are endowed with reason and conscience and should act towards one another in the spirit of brotherhood, I think. So so it's this idea of they are endowed with reason and conscience, but it doesn't say by whom they're endowed. <laughs> we can assume maybe it's God or some higher being, but it doesn't say that explicitly. So, you know, what is really the source of this um, of these rights is something that was contentious at the time. And, you know, it's something really important for us to think about, quite frankly, because even, you know, we're on the cusp, I would say now, of a sort of a new age of enlightenment when we think about, for example, machine learning and artificial intelligence. So if we create a being, an artificial intelligence being, that's more intelligent than we are, that's more creative than we are, that's more, if you will, sort of more human in a way than we are, has those characteristics that we think make us unique on this planet, but it has more of that than we have, does that somehow lower us in the in the ladder of rights that this, these artificial intelligence beings should have more rights than we do because the reason that we claim these rights is um, you know is our consciousness? So it, it, it's kind of a funny thing to think about, but it's important for us to, to, to really grapple with those issues of where do these rights come from and um, why are they so important? Well, let's let's turn to speaking of, of consciousness. Um, for example, Article 18, everyone has the right to freedom of thought, conscience, and religion. This right includes freedom to change his religion or belief and freedom either alone or in community with others and in public and private to manifest his religion or belief in teaching, practice, worship, and observance. I mean, these, what's stated here, this is, is so compelling. If And I would like my listeners to please take the time to read the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. It's not that long a document, neither is the Constitution, but this is even shorter. And it's very mm -hmm. clear cut. Um, I think it's just amazing the rights that you'll find here. And once again, it comes down to, well, how do we enforce any of this? What does it mean? But it could be a guiding post. It could be something that, that each country could look at to make a determination as to whether or not they want to be on the right side of the Declaration of Human Rights as stated. And if they're not, to determine why not. 
So it gives one, if they're a leader and, and those people who are supposedly being led, um, some type of, of measure. And I think that's necessary because prior to this, during World War One and World War Two, um, we had any type of of catastrophe, uh, man-made, as you pointed out, disasters, and of course, militaristic encroachment and murders in which people thought, well, I can do whatever I want. I'm the most powerful in my nation or I'm the military leader. Um, I think the Universal Declaration of, Him of Human Rights gives one pause to stop and say, yes, you have the power, but should you act in this manner? And that's what well, I think is so necessary here. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you mentioned World War II. I mean, this document came out of that trauma of World War II. And, and Article 18, I think, for instance, of, um, you know, Franklin Delano Roosevelt made this speech in January of 1941, the Four Freedoms speech, where he talked about freedom of expression and opinion, freedom of religion, freedom of from want and freedom from fear. And those four freedoms are very much uh, sort of embedded in the Universal Declaration. Um, and, you know, I think part of the argument he was making at the time was to think about the world that would come after World War II. But he was also saying, you know, a world that, that realizes human rights is not just going to be a consequence of our victory, but it's also going to be the cause of our victory because these are the things we're fighting for. And these are the things that are motivating the sacrifices that we're going to have to make. Um, so, yeah, and, you know, after it took a while, but after the declaration, the, the, these two covenants were adopted that reflect the, the basic rights in the declaration. And those are legally binding covenants. And, you know, when countries sign and adopt those and ratify those, then they have an obligation to sort of integrate those um those uh, principles into their own national laws. And so it does have a real effect around the world. And, you know, many constitutions that have been written following the Universal Declaration also reflect the, the language and the principles of the Universal Declaration. So it has had a huge effect, a legally binding effect on the world. Um, but it's something that we have to be vigilant about always to defend. Yes, and I and I spoke earlier about women's rights, but Article 25, everyone has the right mm. to a standard of living adequate for the health and well-being of himself and of his family. We know this is 1948, so of course it's going to be in the male noun, but that includes, mm -hmm. and this is what's interesting, food, clothing, housing, medical care, and necessary social services. So there's, they're talking about universal medical um, insurance, medical care and protection, even in 1948. And also, um, to go to the second section of Article 25, motherhood and childhood are entitled to special care and assistance. All children, whether born in or out of wedlock, shall enjoy the same social Social protection. I mean, this is mm. actually quite progressive for this it time is, period yeah. in the 1940s. I would agree with you. And, you know, you pointed out the himself and his family. But um, uh, so there is some gendered language, but there was also a big movement to, to de-gender the language. So instead of saying every man has the right to a standard of living, which it said in the beginning, it talks about everyone and no one. And, and that was... Um, you know, that was a contentious issue as well during during the negotiations. But I think it is a bit more gender neutral than it would uh, might otherwise have been given its time. Um, but you're right. I think it's a very progressive document and it still speaks to us today. Absolutely. Yes. In Article 16, 
um, because even today we have um, people who are forced into marriage and it states that marriage shall be entered into only with the free and full consent of the intended spouses. And mm-hmm. about the family as the natural and fundamental group unit of society, it is entitled to protection by society and the state. Uh, one of the major issues I've spoken on many times is the um, the black family as a civil rights um, group of need of protection. Um, right mm-hmm. now, the black family itself is under a deluge of discrimination and hardship. But one thing I, I want to go to that I think is very important in the, in the thought that um, people should not be um, discriminated against based on race. This is in the 1940s that we're having this debate during a point of lynching, before the lynching of Emmett Till, but during a time period in which we had people like W.B. Du Bois and um, Marcus Garvey and others and William Patterson who were putting petitions before the United Nations stating that um, the United States was violating their rights um, under international law. And these petitions were forceful in stating out the examples of lynching, the examples of terrorism that was taking place in the United States and how Eleanor Roosevelt um, actually broke in many ways against what we thought she would do. And this is a paper that I wrote at the time, um, her human rights, civil rights dilemma, because Eleanor Roosevelt was on the legal committee of the NAACP. And at the time, W.B. Du Bois put forward um, an appeal to the world to speak on the human rights violations taking place in the United States. And Eleanor Roosevelt said, well, NAACP, if you go forward with this um, statement by W.B. Du Bois before the United Nations, I'm going to resign from this committee. And the NAACP chose to keep um, Eleanor Roosevelt on the committee and allow W.B. Du Bois, its founder, (laughs) to leave. And um, they, they broke with him and maintained their allegiance with her. So the, the international human rights um, committees, uh, the people in, engaged in this kind of work, are seen as the most diplomatic and most genteel. But there are so like bloody fights that take place, and I say that mm. bloody symbolically, within the international human rights world as well. And I'm quite sure you've seen a lot of them because I've seen a few myself. Um, mm. when, when people are debating um, what these, these human rights and, and people wonder, like, what is the purpose of the United Nations? Um, what have they actually done? What can you tell people about the role of the United Nations, the role of human rights work? And, and what is needed to, for us to understand, to, to grapple with? It seems so amorphous. How can you really get us to better understand um, what it means to work in, in humanitarian aid and human rights? Mm. Well, I mean, if you think about the, the founding principles of the U.N., you know, one of the clear founding principles is to reaffirm faith in fundamental human rights and in the, in the dignity and worth of the human person equal rights of men and women, and of nations, large and small, actually, as well. But I think that was one of the challenges of, of the UN when it was formed, because it, it had in it baked into the Charter and then the Universal Declaration with this recognition of individual rights. But at the same time, there was this sort of equal recognition of national sovereignty. And as you know, Gloria, those two things are often in tension and at odds with one another, because we see countries doing things to individuals um, violating their rights, and we want to intervene, but we also have to respect national sovereignty. So that balance is a very difficult one to manage, and I think um, 
you know, the last chapter hasn't hasn't been written on that. Um, but, you know, I think at the end of the day, we have the UN and we have these international structures and we have these documents. But as Eleanor Roosevelt said um, many years ago, uh, you know, it's in our hands. The future of human rights is in our hands. Um, so that's something we always have to remember is that um, the only way that these rights can be realized is the individual people and acting um, in cooperation with one another if we take the steps we need to take to vindicate the rights ourselves and to step forward and, and um, keep advocating, uh, keep demonstrating, uh, keep filing those court cases, you know, um, keep volunteering, you know, donating to organizations that you care about. You really have to take, each of us has to take personal responsibility for seeing that these rights are fulfilled. And you serve as Associate Vice President at the University of Oxford, and mm-hmm. uh, you've been um, seen as a visionary. And many things, the projects that you've worked on, that you've you've, you've created out of whole cloth, you know, <laughs> it's like you mm-hmm. just said, I see this and I'm going to create it. And it's something that I've admired about you for some time. Um, so when you're looking into the future, and you're trying to, and I, I've done this in, in my own vein, is, is my little small way, and looking at how do we bring together our constitutional law with our international human rights law. And it seems that this mm. country has had this this very tense relationship with international law, going all the way back, if I say, when it comes to slavery, um, to the to the these the Seward case and other cases in England where we had William Wilberforce who was anti-slavery and rose up and ended slavery in England and then we had the um, Dred Scott decision in which they specifically state and this is 1857 um, we are not going to look to outside countries as to what they do when we make our decision about slavery this country has gone out of its way to make sure it doesn't look at international law when it makes its decisions in our highest courts. And and yet at some point, as we become closer together as a world in this global neighborhood in which we see by the pandemic that there are no true borders when it comes to disease or even war, uh, how do you see in the future a way in which Americans who are so insular can better understand international human rights and what's necessary for us to to be less insular when it comes to our understanding of law? Mm. Oh, it's a good question. You know, I think it's up to us to invent the future, um, but we also have to look to the past. You know, you mentioned this very interesting story about Eleanor Roosevelt and W.E. Du Bois at the NAACP. I don't know that story as well, but you know, I have looked a little bit at, um, for instance, there's a book I read a year or two ago, The Night Malcolm X Spoke at the Oxford Union, actually. And it's it's an amazing um, tale of Malcolm X's sort of uh, recognition of the broader human rights movement and the connection between the civil rights movement and the human rights movement. And I found it really fascinating. So I think looking back at the work of W.E. Du Bois, Malcolm X, and others, and how they were able to... Um, intellectually connect our domestic civil rights struggle to the broader human rights struggle in South Africa and elsewhere. I, I think there are a lot of lessons to be learned there still for, for the broader movement for, for civil, civil rights in this country. Um, so I think looking backward is important, but looking forward, um, you know, I think we just need to keep 
to keep advocating and keep making those connections and find those allies um, who are out there uh, who can uh, put what happens in this country in a sort of a broader global context. Because I think sometimes if you can get people to take a step back um, from, from the sort of parochial um, attitudes that we have about our own domestic problems and see them in a, in a, in a larger light, it can be really informative. And I, I think we need that kind of perspective to help us move forward as a country. Thank you, Michael Cooper. Um, those are really excellent closing words. If people wanted to know more about your work, where can they get in touch with you? Oh, my gosh. Um, that's a good question. I don't have a website or anything like that. But I suppose they could follow me on Twitter. I'm not very active on Twitter, but um, I, I don't even know my own Twitter account. It's MDC Human Rights, I think. <laughs> so that might be something that they could do. I'm okay. not as active on social media as I should be. Embarrassingly. Well, uh, well, I think you're you're active enough around the world. I mean, even <laughs> if we can't get around the world right now because of travel limitations, you've done a great deal. And um, much more is to come, I am sure. I know Mercy Corps and, and Oxford University, so many entities, United Nations Association have been touched by your work. And you will continue to help us as to as we follow um, our our path, our natural path, as you pointed out, toward the future. December 10th is International Human Rights Day, and we hope that people will recognize that day and take time out to read the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Find out more about that document and Eleanor Roosevelt's role in it. Thank you so much, Michael Cooper. Thank you, Gloria. This is Law of the Land with Gloria J. Brown Marshall. 